to 1 Samuel 22, and if I could have uh, Russ Sandifer, if you'll come on up. Russ Sandifer is going to read the passage of Scripture for us this morning, 1 Samuel 22. Um, This is God's holy, inspired word. If If you need it, it's here too. All right. 1 Samuel 22. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became captain over them. And there were with him about 400 men. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. Now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under a tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with Jesse, with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then answered Doeg, the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house. The priests who were at Nob and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Here now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, and that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait? As at this day, then Ahimelech answered the king and who among all your servants is so faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house is today the first time that I've inquired of God for him. No, let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father for your servant has known nothing of all this much or little. And the king said, you shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, turn and kill the priest of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priest of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, You turn and strike their priest. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priest. 
And he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priest of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. The word of God. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for your word. Thank you that your word instructs us and trains us. Thank you that your word teaches us about you, about ourselves. God, I pray that you would open up our eyes, that we might see you. I pray that, Jesus, we might behold you, the the king who is worthy of following God. And I pray that wherever we are following after other things, you would reveal that to us as well. And, God, I pray that you would just renew us by your spirit and that you would give us hope and faith in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, um, like many of you, I, I hear at least... My two oldest children and I, we, a few weeks ago, got to see a movie called Star Wars The Force Awakens. It was apparently a really big deal. Um, we enjoyed it. I found myself reminiscing about the, when, when I was a young boy, when I started the very first Star Wars, not the, the other three ones that they had in the 90s that really weren't Star Wars, but the first Star Wars back in the 70s. And I remember when I first saw it, I pictured myself as, as one of the main characters. I don't know if you ever do that when you watch a movie or not. In the very first Star Wars, I was, I was a kid and Luke was my hero. You know, Mark Hamill. Um, you know, he, he was, he was the kind of the outcast boy. He was on this little planet and I thought, I, I want to be like Luke. And I actually named my first dog that my parents bought me, I named him Luke after Luke Skywalker. And, um, whenever I'd play pretend with my friends, I would pretend to be Luke Skywalker. Um, and they would pretend to be Han Solo. But anyway, um, Luke was cooler because he had the, the lightsaber, right? And in and, and this movie we're watching, the, the recent one, the Star Wars The Force Awakens, I was thinking, you know, I wonder how many people here are thinking of themselves maybe as, you know, Poe Dameron, that resistance pilot, or maybe Ray, um, I don't know her name, um, or maybe General Leia, or whoever that other main character guy, Finn, I think is his name, what he was, and... Um, or maybe maybe you watch other movies and they're more your speed, like the Bourne identity, and you, you, you dream of being Jason Bourne, but you really don't have the training and the skills, but you hope that you could be. And um, in this count today, you know, we're not meant to read all stories in the Bible with thinking of ourselves as the main character or one of the main characters. Sometimes it applies, but other times it doesn't. And sometimes when we watch movies, it's not very realistic that we think of ourselves as the main characters. We're not meant to. They're meant to be someone to... To, to look to lead. And in this account, we have two contrasting kings, really. We've been going through the book of Samuel as a church, and we've been seeing stories of King Saul, and then of the anointed King David, who's not yet king. 
And in this account today, we're, we're meant to see these two types of kings, these, these two very different contrasting kings, but we're not meant to put ourselves in their shoes. You're not meant to think, you know, um, don't be like King Saul, although you shouldn't be like King Saul, but you're not meant to think, okay, um, the lesson here is don't be like King Saul, be like King David. No, that's not the lesson for us at all. There's two kinds of contrasting kings here. And for God's people in that day, they were meant to see what kind of king should we follow? What kind of king is God's king? What kind of king is worthy of following? What kind of king will we choose to follow after? That was what God had for those people in that day who originally read this. And I believe for us today, as we see this story, it applies to us as well. You know, no, we don't have a, a literal king. If you're in this country, at least, maybe you're from the UK or somewhere else where there's a, a formal head of government, a queen. But this story is, is, is meant for us to see that what kind of king, what kind of ruler will you have? What kind of ruler will you follow? Will you follow someone who is man's chosen king, which was Saul, or someone like that today? You know, for us today, the translation might be money, or a politician, or some leader, or whatever. Man's chosen king, is that the kind of king you will follow, or a king of your own making? Or will you choose to follow God's anointed king, his true anointed king, the fulfillment of David? And that's really a question before us, and... I believe what we're really meant to see, really the main idea, the main intention for us to see is that although man's king seems powerful, that's what Saul seemed like, he seemed powerful. Although man's king seemed powerful, God's king is the right one to follow. That was, that was what they would have gotten in that day. And I think that's what God has for us as well. And at times we can be tempted to think that the kings of this earth, the kind of kings that we make, the kings that we choose, they, they seem very powerful and they seem that we can trust in them and whatever kings that we make. But those kings ultimately lead us to death, as we see Saul did. And yet we see that God's kind of king, God's anointed king, is the one who, although he doesn't appear powerful, he's the one to follow What's before us is a very real account. This is no fictional tale. It's a very real account of two kings. And and King Saul, as, as this story opens up, he seems totally in control, totally dominating the scene, and completely powerful, doesn't he? David has been on the run, and he's he's been hopping from place to place, and he's been afraid of Saul. God's chosen anointed king seems weak, and he seems like he's on the run, and Saul seems powerful. And so the first thing that we see is that God's chosen king seems weak and not kingly. That's what we see in in verse 1. God's chosen king, he seems weak and he doesn't seem very kingly, does he? David, in chapter, really since chapter 17, David has been avoiding Saul. He's been on the run from Saul. He's He's been a king on the run, a king with no place to rest his head. And what kind of king is that? A king without a palace, a king without a kingdom, a king without a people seemingly weak previous three chapters david has been clearly shown to be god's anointed king but he's a king that's very different than saul he's a king who's not yet reigning fully he was a king on the run he wasn't accepted by saul any longer and saul pursued him and sought to take his life in chapter 19 if you remember he fled from saul to samuel at ramah and god miraculously delivers david and then the first chapter 
First verses of chapter 20, David runs and he goes to Jonathan, think that maybe that covenant will help him. But Jonathan says, I really can't help you. You need to flee from here too. And so then in chapter 21, David departed from Jonathan and went to Nob and he saw Ahimelech the priest, which is what our account references. And then verse 10 of chapter 1, David, he fled to Achish, the king of Gath and Philistia. And miraculously, God God really spared him and he came away unscathed. But David has been just this, this king on the run, this king in weakness. And he doesn't seem like the kind of king that God would really put in place, does he? You know, maybe as you think about um, who you're following today, and you're thinking about this Christian faith, and maybe you're exploring the Christian faith, and maybe as you're reading through the New Testament, you see the accounts of Jesus. And he doesn't seem to be very powerful. In fact, he shuns worldly authority. He shuns worldly reign and rule, even though he has all authority in heaven and earth. He says, been given to me by the Father. Yet he doesn't take up any worldly domain. And in fact, Jesus, he ends up giving up his life, allowing himself to be to be beaten, to be abused. He allows himself to be nailed to a cross. He is a king of weakness. And that's perplexing, right? He's a king of seeming weakness, like David. And all throughout the Bible, we know that David, it really is a picture, a forerunner of Christ. And, and in fact, Matthew, the very first book in the New Testament, it gives a genealogy and it looks back to David and it says that Jesus is in the line of David. And so, we see that David is this pre-figure, this forerunner of Christ. And yet, both David and Jesus, they seem to be weak. They don't seem to be reigning in the way you might expect. Well, in the opening chapter of 22, we see David's departed and he's escaped to Adalam. He was an anointed king. He had no place to rest his head. Doesn't that sound familiar? He was going from place to place. Jesus said of himself, the son of man, um, he has no place to rest his head. The birds of the air have homes, but the son of man has no place to rest his head. What kind of king is that really? Is that a king who's really worthy of following? He's a wandering king, a king who wasn't living like one. David wasn't living like a king. He was an unlikely king. He didn't seem to have a home. And he doesn't have a permanent place to rest his head, though we can see that he, he really is the kind of king that can be trusted. And so really in the, in the first couple verses here, you see that his family, his family has a choice between, okay, do we, do we rely on this worldly powerful king or do we go and flee to David? And so we see his family goes to him and Saul's own daughter and son, they, they couldn't trust their father. And yet David's family, they realize they can trust in David, this seemingly weak king. Saul was unreliable, untrustworthy as he dealt with his children. He um, twice really was not trusting Jonathan here. In this passage, um, he is maligning Josh, uh, Jonathan and accusing him of conspiring against him with David. He, he kind of gives his daughters up, kind of sells them off really to make political alliances. He did the same thing with David. His children can't trust him, but we see that David is a different kind of king. David is sought out by his family, even though he seems weak and not very kingly. And then we see another trait in verses 2 to 4. We see that God's chosen king, not only does he, he seem weak, but he welcomes and he protects. 
God's chosen king, he welcomes and protects. What do we see in verses 2 through 4? Look down your Bibles, if you will. It says, everyone who was in distress. There's kind of three D's that it mentions. Maybe not in the ESV, but in every other um, English translation. It mentions three D's here. Uh, everybody who was in distress. Everybody who was in debt. And everybody who was discontented. The ESV says bitter in soul. The, the literal word there is discontented. And all the other English versions translate it that way. So David was one who welcomed everybody who was in distress. You ever in distress? You ever been distressed about circumstances and situations? David was the kind of king who welcomes everybody in distress. He, he, he said he also welcomed all those who were in debt. And then he, he also welcomes all those who were discontented, kind of bitter in their soul. They were discontent with, with Saul's reign. They were in debt because of Saul's reign. They were distressed because of Saul's reign. Because of this earthly kind of king. I remember once when I was out hiking an Appalachian Trail and this massive rainstorm all of a sudden blew in and this, this thunderstorm came down and, and lightning was all over the place and the rain was so heavy you could barely see the trail and we finally came to this rest house and some, some people who in our party had already gotten there and they had a little heater there and I just remember how wonderful it was to be welcomed into a dry place that was warm. And we could be out of the storm. We were, we were in distress and we were welcomed in. Even though it was, it was just a little lean to, the effect was pretty great. David, he's just in a cave. And you might think that's pretty crazy for them to go to a guy in a cave. How in the world could they be welcomed there? And yet things were so dire for them that it was better for them to be in a cave with a guy who was a fugitive than to live under the reign of Saul, to live under the reign of the earthly king. When you come to a king who protects and gives and welcomes you, there is nothing like it. There's nothing like it. David, he becomes their captain. He becomes their leader of all those in distress and in debt and discontented. He becomes the one who's really guiding this ship of refugees through their troubling waters. And somehow David gathered, it says, about 400 men in the process. As we read last week, David, he, he had sought to protect his, his parents. He, he took his parents to Moab. And his parents were kept for safekeeping in a foreign land that would have otherwise been hostile to the Israelites. And, and we see this principle here that God's chosen king, he welcomes, he welcomes those in distress, he welcomes those in debt. He welcomes those who are discontent. You know, there's something familiar about that. You see, Jesus said in Matthew 11, he says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. You know, in debt and burdened. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Think about the people who Jesus surrounded himself by. David was surrounded by people in debt, by people distressed and discontented. What, what did Jesus get accused of? The Pharisees said, why are you hanging out with, with tax collectors and sinners? Well, because Jesus, the ultimate fulfillment of David, is, is a king who welcomes all those in debt. Are you aware this morning of your debt before God? Are you aware of your sins before God? I hope so. Because that's the only way that we can be welcomed by the king. 
Now, as, as a follower of the king, if you've, if you've placed your trust in the true King Jesus, um, you can be welcomed in and receive his forgiveness from that debt. But unless you're aware of that debt to begin with, there's, it, 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 you won't find a welcome. But he welcomes all those who are in debt. He welcomes all those who are distressed. And really, all of us at one time were distressed. Maybe you're distressed today. There's a welcome in the true king for you. Maybe you're discontent with your life, discontent with this world's reign. Maybe you are distressed by what you see going on around you, the reign of this, of those other kings, these worldly kings around you. Jesus welcomes you and he says, come to me all who are weary, all who are in debt, all who are distressed, all who are discontent. And he wants to give you rest. I was thinking about Jesus' followers. They weren't, they, they weren't really notable they were fishermen they were rough guys they were tax collector they they weren't they weren't people of noble birth and and that's the kind of followers that jesus draws and and that gives hope to you and me he he calls all of us who are in debt all of us who are distressed all of us who are discontent to come to him and so you have this in this picture in in samuel 22 you have this picture over this kind of this robin hood figure of david He's in the woods in Horath and, and he's got at least 400 men and, and probably their families as well. And he's surrounded, surrounded by this huge company of those who are distressed in debt and discontent. And yet he's welcoming and he's protecting. Think for a moment, what, what kind of king do you, do you need? What kind of king do you want? We need a king who welcomes and protects those who are in distress, those who are in debt, those who are discontent. Something else we see, look down at verse 5. It says, Then the prophet Gad said to David, Don't remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed, went into the forest of Hereth. Something we see here is that, something we touched on last week, we won't, we won't really unpack very long today, is that, that God's chosen king, he listens to God's word. He's guided by God's word and just like Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Father. In contrast to Saul, who is really abandoned by God in one sense because he's abandoned God. Saul no longer has any of the prophets with him. Samuel has left him. God's word has left him. All of the priests are not with him. And in fact, when he summons them to him, we know in this passage that he later kills them all. Saul is a man who is forsaken by God because he's forsaken God. And yet David is the king who listens to God's word and is protected and guided. Saul here, it's a dismal picture. He's without any priests. He's without any prophets. God's not speaking to him because he's rejected God. And, and Saul is really a, a warning for all of us to, to not go down that path. It was a slow and subtle path for Saul that he went down. But now we really see the, the utter depth of Saul's depravity in these verses. And in contrast, David is one who's saying, I'm going to listen for God's word. I'm going to obey God. And then I'm going to listen to see what God intends and how God directs. And then look down at verse 6. We're going to see yet another contrast here we see man's chosen king he seems strong and kingly he seems strong he seems kingly look down at verse six saul here we have a picture saul's on top of this hill he's in command it says he's sitting on top of this hill in gibeah 
And that was significant because that area of Gibeah was one of the tallest plateaus, really. And the whole land of Israel was over 2,200 feet in elevation. And as you know, Israel goes all the way down to one of the lowest places on earth. And so Saul is sitting up here on the high point. It's a militarily strategic place. He is in command of the plains around him. He is in, in the place of his homeland. He's, he's surrounded by all of his people of Benjamin. He is a man who's in control. And, and he says he's surrounded by all of his, his men. All the people around him are surrounding him, who are serving him. And if you remember uh, back in, I think it was Samuel 16, where it talks about Jonathan, he had a, a thousand men at his command. Saul had two thousand men of war at his command. So we probably have thousands of men, of men of war, of servants of Saul, are surrounding him. He seems strong. He seems kingly. Not only that, he's got a weapon in his hand. You know, whenever you see Saul, he's got this weapon in his hand. He's got a. He's always got a spear. I think, I think he maybe had an inferiority complex or something like that because he's, he's always having to prove that he's, he's in control and he's got this symbol of his strength and his might. He's got this spear with him again and he's, he's sitting under this tree and he's surrounded by everybody and who's at his beck and call. In contrast, where's David? David's in a cave. He's hiding out with these people who are in debt and distressed and discontent. He seems small and insignificant. You'd have to be crazy to follow King David, wouldn't you? Unless you were so desperate that you realized that Saul's kingdom and Saul's reign only leads to death. Unless you had the eyes of faith to see that that David was God's true chosen king and that no matter what it looked like, David was worth following. We see that this weak David and his band of not-so-merry men They were soon discovered and Saul caught wind of it. Then we see in verses 7 through 19, we see another picture, another contrast really. We see that man's chosen king, he leads by intimidation and violence. And that's how a lot of the world around us leads. That's how the world tells leaders to to do things. Don't show your weakness. Always act like you're strong. You know what you're talking about. Never act like you don't know the answers. And then lead by intimidation, lead by violence can imagine the picture Saul is sitting there he's in command he's sitting under this terebinth tree all these men are around him and this messenger might have run up and whispered in Saul's ear about David and said we found David and he's gathered a force in this cave in Idol and he's got 400 people and so then Saul he, he's agitated he gets up and he gives this kind of paranoid speech this megalomaniacal speech almost and and he dresses his own tribe of Benjamin. And he says, he says to them, kind of impugning them, he says, Will the son of Jesse, will he give you a position? Will he give you fields and vineyards? Will he make you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? And in so many words, he's effectively saying that, Is David paying all of you off? Is David going to be good to you like I am? Can David give you the rewards that I give you? He seems like a strong and powerful king who's able to deliver all that they want, right? You know, sometimes we're carried away thinking that this world really offers us all that we need. That it offers us power or money or position as if those things will satisfy. So Saul says, you know, is he giving you what only I can give you? 
Otherwise, why are you all conspiring against me? Basically is what he's saying. And it's interesting to note that he's, he says, he says to his countrymen, the Benjaminites. If you remember way back, Samuel prophesied that Saul would take and take and take in his kingdom. But he's saying, I, I give, I give, I give. Well, who's he giving to? He's only giving to his kinsmen, the Benjaminites. And that implies that he's had to take from everybody else in Israel because he only really trusts his own tribe. He's only giving to them. He's a paranoid man. He seems powerful, but he's leading by intimidation, by violence, by coercion. And then he accuses them. He assumes they're all co-conspirators against them. Along with David. And the way he accuses them of conspiring against me says that you should have told me that my son made a covenant with Jesse. And that they're they are plotting to, to overtake me is basically what he's accusing them of. But it's not clear that any of the people knew that. It's not clear that, that they knew that Jonathan and David had a covenant. And, and we know what's clear is that David is not plotting to overthrow Saul. But this is a feeble picture of a paranoid king that's on the way out, but yet he tries to hold on to his power by leading, by intimidation, by violence. And he's angry and he's self-pitying and he's ultimately he's weak. He seems like he has all the world, all the self-confidence in the world, but really he is frail and has no confidence and he has to put on a show. It's often the case with people who have these huge egos. They act like they're unassailable, but the reality is they're they're very timid and so they put on a front he's clearly angry but he's also self-pitying he's weak and then he has this self-pitying appeal he says none of you is sorry for me he says none of you is sorry for me nobody discloses that my my son stirred up my servant against me to lie and wait at this day and and you you got to be thinking the people around him are thinking you know what in the world is going on it must have been a mixture of bewilderment his outburst and then confusion and then i don't i don't this is not the king i i thought he was but he's feeling sorry for himself he's self-focused he's acting as if david was lying in wait and he's asking acting as if all the men around him were conspiring and so he asks you know which one of you will will help me out basically and no one responds to all everybody's silent except for one person doeg the Edomites. He wasn't, he wasn't an Israelite. He, he was a man who, who steps forward. He tries to ingratiate himself. He was not looking to follow a worthy king. He was looking to follow the king who would give him what he wants. And then really, if we're going to put ourselves in somebody's shoes and ask, what kind of person are we? What kind of character are we? We might be one of these kind of lesser character like Doeg the Edomite. We might be tempted there to, to look, to get something, to ingratiate ourselves with the kings of this world. As Doeg does. And so Doeg, he ingratiates himself with Saul. And he says, Saul, hey, I saw, I saw David. He went to uh, Ahimelech. And Ahimelech, he outfitted him with stuff. He, he gave him all his provisions. He gave him all his bread. And, and he gave him a sword as well so he could fight against you. He kind of left out the part about David deceiving Ahimelech. And that Ahimelech really wasn't conspiring. But Doeg was looking to get on Saul's good side. Because he was looking for the kind of king who he thought could reward him with temporary gain. And so the, the king, he sends for him elected priest and he summons all of his father's house and all the priests who are at Nob. And, and they all came before the seemingly powerful king, Saul. And Saul calls Ahimelech out and Ahimelech humbly answers him. He says, yes, my Lord. And 
And then Saul says, you know, why did you conspire against me? As if Ahimelech somehow had known what David was thinking. But he wasn't really asking. He wasn't saying, did you conspire against me? He was already made up in his mind about the fact that Ahimelech must be a traitor. And so he assumed that Ahimelech did it on purpose. And he accused him of conspiring with David, aiding and abetting a criminal. And Himelech, he answers really wisely. If you look down your Bibles, he's, he's answering wisely. He proclaims the truth. He says, you know, there's nobody in all your, in all your servants that's more faithful to you. In fact, he's your son-in-law. He's your son-in-law? He's faithful to you? And he, he's, he's your bodyguard? And, and there's nobody like him? And then he says that David's never intended anything bad in the past. He's a supporter. And that I've, I've inquired of, of God for David in the past. This is not unusual. Why wouldn't I do this now? I'm innocent. I didn't know anything about this big or small. I didn't know anything about this conspiracy. But Saul is paranoid. He cannot be trusted. He is the powerful king who leads by intimidation and violence. And he cannot be trusted. He's a king that's self-seeking that ultimately eats his own followers in a sense. He's not a righteous judge. He doesn't hear out of him like he isn't seeking the truth or justice. He already believes his own version of the truth. He wants to make an example of him like he wipe out anybody who follows David. And then shockingly, without hearing from another witness and, and Deuteronomy and Numbers, they say that you have to hear from two witnesses on the, on, on the burden of proof of two witnesses when anybody be put to death. But yet Saul just hears this non-Israelite. And on the basis of that, Saul... He gives the death sentence out and he reveals his true colors of just how far gone he is from God. Not only does he no longer hear from God, not only does the Spirit of God left Saul, but now he's opposing the priests. And think about that for a moment. The king of this world, the, the people's chosen king, is not just not hearing from God, not just is he absent of God's Spirit, but he is actively opposing God's representatives, the people who would make atonement on behalf of, of God's people. He's making himself a complete enemy of God. He's shunning the very system that was meant to be a blessing to God's people. He's not carrying out the duties that a king should. He's not being righteous and just and merciful. He's an example of injustice and vengeance and opposition to God. And, and that's really where all of this world's kings will lead. They seem to have power, but they will not lead us to God. They lead us to a place of self-seeking, a place really that's anti-God, anti-Christ. No true Israelite would ever kill the entire priesthood. And Saul, he looks around at his guard, his personal bodyguard, and says, Hey, I want you to go and kill, kill not only Ahimelech, but all the priests. And nobody moved at all. Because they feared God more than they feared their earthly king. Saul must have realized that he was angry. He wants to make them pay. So he turns to the, the most prominent non-Israelite there, Doeg. And Doeg, the, the Edomite, he, he responded to Saul's command. And he went and he killed the very priests of God on high that Saul was supposed to be serving. Years before, if you remember, Saul was queasy about obeying the Lord and he wouldn't even kill all the Amalekites, the enemies of the Lord. He wouldn't 
kill their king and he spared all the best. But now he has given in to his own will and his own way so much that he now not only is willing to kill enemies of God, he's willing to kill the people of God. Along with all their livestock, their children, their infants. And then Doeg, we, we see this horrific massacre. He goes and he he kills 85 of the priests, but he doesn't stop there. He kills all of their families. He goes to Nob, their city, the priestly city, and he, he kills all of their family. You can imagine somewhere between three and 400 people, the estimates are, this atrocity that was committed by Saul through Doeg. Because the kings of this earth, they might seem to be able to give us everything, but what they deliver in the end is death. They were all killed senselessly, and there's a tragedy that the people who would, were following God would be killed by God's enemies. But at the same time, somehow in God's providence, this was a fulfillment of prophecy as well. And God's enemy was actually used to carry out the prophecy of God's judgment when he had prophesied against Eli in and, and chapter 2 and says that there will be none of your descendants left except for one. And then what do we see? There's one left of Eli's descendants. And so somehow in God's provision and somehow in God's plans, even the people who were following him were killed, but that wasn't outside of God's control. So in the midst of this tragedy, we can see that God's purposes are still sovereignly being carried out even by his very enemies. Reminds me of another time about a thousand years after this account when there was another earthly king and, and he found that through prophets really, through wise men, that there was going to be another king in the town of Bethlehem. And King Herod, he sent his men to brutally kill all of the newborn babies to and under in Bethlehem. And this still happens, this kind of thing happens today. The enemies of Christ are, are brutally killing Christians all around the world. Every, seemingly every week or every month over the last few years, the last couple of years, you can read about other accounts of, of the enemies of Christ seeking out the followers of the King. And yet, in the midst of that, we can take heart knowing that, that all of that is really under God's supervision, that he somehow is carrying out his will in the midst of enemies doing harm. God is still in control. And, and here in our own country, we can face a little more subtle opposition, but it's still the same spirit of this antichrist, isn't it? The kind of opposition that seeks to silence those who speak in the name of Christ and the kind of opposition that calls those who believe what the Bible teaches bigoted, even though we seek to love those we may disagree with. Maybe you face that kind of opposition and, and, and then maybe you are challenged with the same kind of question that Saul's men must have been challenged with when they got the command from Saul. What kind of king will we follow? Will we follow this king? Will we listen to him as he seeks to kill and destroy the followers of Christ? Or, or the people who were in debt and distressed and discontented what kind of king would they follow? Would they follow a king who's seemingly powerful and could give them everything they wanted if only they gave up to them all that he wanted? Or would they follow a king who is seemingly obscure, seemingly weak? What kind of king will we follow? Will we seek out? 
Will you follow what you see with your eyes, which can give you money or power or make you feel good, satisfy you temporarily? Is that the kind of king you're choosing to follow? Or you follow God's true anointed king? In times of trouble, like the followers of David experienced, like David himself experienced, we can cry out to God. And we know that he hears us. We know that David, he wrote Psalm 142. I think we have it for you in the overheads. David actually wrote Psalm 142 while he was in this cave in Adullam. He says, I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. In the midst of this utterly devastating tragedy, David's faith was in God. He knows that God will deal bountifully. And, and we see this, one of these sons of Ahimelech, Abiathar, he escapes and he flees to David. And the last contrast that we're shown is that David, as God's chosen king, he is a king who keeps safe. God's chosen king keeps safe. Look down in verse 20. Somehow God preserved Abiathar. And he kept a remnant of the priesthood for David and his people. At the same time, when you take note, it's mentioned several times that Ahimelech, he's the son of Ahitub. And it's significant because he's one of the members of Eli's family. And yet God did preserve one of the members of Eli's family. God preserves this remnant. And then in verse 21, it says, Abiathar told David that Saul killed the prophets of the Lord. And when Abiathar gets to David and David hears that Saul had killed all the priests of the Lord, I can only imagine how David reacted. I imagine he was affected deeply. I imagined he probably wept. He was a passionate man. He was likely very angry. It must have been a, like a gut punch to him. We don't know for sure. It doesn't tell us the details. But we do know that he felt responsible for their, their deaths. And unlike Saul, who always is blaming somebody else, David takes responsibility in this passage. He admits his part in the matter. He didn't try to act as he wasn't responsible. He owns up to how his actions affected the Abiathar's whole family and led to the death. And then he makes a pledge to Abiathar. He says something that's actually pretty surprising. Because if you think about the picture of where David is and, and who his followers are compared to Saul, who his followers are in his strategic position. David's in this cave hiding out. Saul's in position of power, surrounded by strength. And Abiathar, his entire family has been wiped out by Saul. And Abiathar comes to David and David says, don't worry. Don't be afraid. He says something that's really, would it be funny if it was different circumstances? He's like, stay with me. You know, I'm in this cave. Stay with me. Don't be afraid. That would have been hard to swallow because there was good reason for Abiathar to be afraid. Hundreds of his family, all of his family was murdered at once that day. But then David says something else. He says, stay with me. Don't be afraid. And then he, he says, he who seeks my life seeks your life. And then he says something else is kind of saying. He says, with me, you shall be in safekeeping. 
Now that, that sounds kind of unbelievable. Wait a minute, David, you're on the run. You've been on the run. You're pretty weak. You only have 400 men and they're, they're all discontent and in debt and distressed. They're not very influential guys. You're going to be in safekeeping? You're going to keep me in safekeeping? But David knows who it is who's anointed him as king. And he knows that God is bigger than any kings of this earth. And so he says, with me you'll be in safekeeping. And what he means is that as long as you are with me, you're going to be safe. And I'm actually going to defend you with my life. He says, those who seek your life, seek mine also. What he's saying is, yeah, yeah, your life might be sought, but they're seeking my life too. And you know what? As long as you're here with me, I'm going to keep you safe. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to be with you. That was, that was a bold statement for David to make because he wasn't necessarily safe on his own. But he was trusting in God to deliver him. David knew who it was who had called him to be king. And since David wasn't actually king, though, he, he knew he'd be safe in God. There's another psalm that David wrote when he was here in the cave, here running from Saul. In, in Psalm 52, in verse 8 and 9, it's the, one, of the, one of the two psalms that David wrote when he was here. And he says in Psalm 52, 8, in the midst of this trouble, in the midst of being surrounded, he says, but I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. Like, wait a minute, David, are you delusional here? Here's how David could say that. He says, I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. But David, wait a minute, aren't you, aren't you in a cave? You see, David knew that God had already accomplished it. He just needed to experience it. He just, he needed to carry that out. He says, because you have done it, I will wait for your name for it's good in the presence of the godly. And there couldn't be a bigger contrast between Saul and David. Saul, the people's king, he, he, the people chose him to lead them. He was dangerous. He was irrational. He was self-seeking. Unhinged, really ungodly. He was opposed to God and his word and his priests. He sought out those who were impressive. David, on the other hand, was God's chosen king who wasn't very impressive on the outside. But David trusted in God's deliverance. He seemed very weak in this moment. And yet he was really on the verge in a few chapters from, from victory over Saul ultimately. By the end of Samuel, Saul dies. In Second Samuel, it's really the second half of the book of Samuel is written as one book originally. In the second half of the book of Samuel, God, God brings him into his reign you know, I was thinking about the weakest moment, the seemingly weakest moment or one of the weakest moments in Jesus' ministry was when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he was so weak and so weary that when he was praying, he, it was like he sweat drops of blood. He says, Father, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me. And yet he was on the verge of, of God using him, the seemingly weak king, to accomplish what no other king could. David knew he was, he served a God who was faithful and able. Jesus said, nevertheless, Father, not my will but yours be done. He knew that he serves a faithful God. 
David was the kind of king that Israel needed, even if he wasn't fully reigning yet. He would, he would end up successfully protecting Abiathar, and we know in the rest of Samuel that he does. In fact, Abiathar, he, he, he becomes a, a priest to David and becomes the high priest of Israel. But David, although he was a protector, he wouldn't be perfect. He wouldn't be the true salvation of Israel. As God's people would not be safe with David forever. He only offers this temporary salvation. And it's kind of sad if you read the rest of Samuel. But remember the theme of Samuel. The theme of Samuel, really, the theme of 1 Samuel is that we're looking for a king. We're looking for a king. And so as we read this contrast of, of Saul and David, the question is, what kind of king are you looking for? What kind of king will you be ruled by? Will you be ruled by an earthly king that seems to be powerful? Or will you be ruled by God's chosen king who seems weak, but ultimately will have the victory and has the victory? The good news for us is that there is a king who takes in all who are distressed, all who are in debt, all who are discontent. And this king, Jesus, he keeps them safe in himself. David knew that only the Lord can be the true refuge, that only God can ultimately protect. And the king that we have is the God-man, Jesus. That's why we don't look for David or an earthly king. We look for, we look for Jesus, ultimately, for God to be our refuge. We don't need refuge from those who can oppose us or even kill our bodies. Jesus says, you know, what do you have to fear in man? He can just take your body, but in me, I'll keep you safe. And he welcomes us into his refuge through trusting in him. We need an ultimate refuge. We need safety in a king no matter what happens. In this world, you may have troubles. Jesus says in this world, you will have troubles. But take heart, I've overcome this world. He's a king who's already overcome. Even though he doesn't appear to be fully reigning yet, his, his rule and his reign has begun. We need a king who's safe no matter what happens. And Jesus said in John five twenty four, he said to his disciples, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life. He doesn't come into judgment as passed from death into life. You need the kind of safety that's eternal. You need the kind of life that, that goes beyond this temporal, earthly life. If you and I stay with this king, you stay with him, you have a sure refuge. Hebrews 6, verse 18 encourages us. We who have fled for refuge might have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Think about that picture. It's an anchor of your soul. Do you need an anchor? Are you distressed? Are you in debt? Are you discontent? We can have a sure and steadfast anchor of our souls. A hope that enters into the place behind the curtain. What that means is the God's presence. We're anchor, we have an anchor in God's very presence in Jesus. It says, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, I become a high priest forever. All those who are distressed or in debt, maybe you're physically in debt, you, you, owe, you owe something financially. 
Even if you don't, you're, all of us in some sense are in debt spiritually. All of us are in distress in one way or another. All of us should be discontent with this world's reign and this world's rulers. Don't look for contentment in the political system and all the debates that are going on right now. Don't, don't look for a savior there. That's the wrong kind of king to look to. Don't look to surety and safety here. Look for safety in a king who can truly deliver. And then, as the Bible says, let's go out to Jesus who's outside of the camp. You know, this picture of Saul and, and Jesus is outside of the camp, but he is the, where our refuge is found. In him we find safety. In him we're accepted. In him, all of us who are distressed, he keeps safe. Even in the worst, most dark hour, he protects and keeps them safe in his anointed king. And this anointed king, he's defended his people with his own life. He gave up his own life, even to the point of shedding blood on the cross, so that he could forgive our debts. So that he could relieve our distress when we realize that we deserve God's wrath. So he could, he could say, come to me and find contentment in me. I want to read to you from a song. It's, it's called, I Have a Shelter. I'm going to read you the words, and I have them up here for you on the overheads as well. It says, I have a shelter in the storm when troubles pour upon me. Though fears are rising like a flood, my soul can rest securely. Oh, Jesus, I will hide in you. My place of peace and solace. No trial is deeper than your love that comforts all my sorrows. I have a shelter in the storm when all my sins accuse me. Though justice charges me with guilt, your grace will not refuse me. Oh, Jesus, I will hide in you who bore my condemnation. I will find my refuge in your wounds, for there I find salvation. I have a shelter in the storm. When constant winds would break me, maybe that's you. For in my weakness I have learned, your strength will not forsake me. Oh, Jesus, I will hide in you. The one who bears my burdens with faithful hands that cannot fail. You'll bring me home to heaven. You know, it's funny. Jesus, Jesus told his followers in Luke. He, he tells them in Luke 21, verse 16. He says, you're going to be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you that will be put to death. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake. You're like, wait a minute. This doesn't seem like you're keeping me safe here, Jesus. <laughs> this doesn't make sense. You're saying I'm going to be delivered by parents, my brothers, relatives, and friends. And some of us are going to be put to death for his name's sake. That doesn't seem so safe. He says, you'll be hated by all. I don't know that that's the kind of king I want. Is that? But then in verse 18... He says something that doesn't seem to make sense. He says, you're going to be delivered up and some of you be put to death and you're going to be hated. He says, but not a hair of your head will perish. What does he mean there? What he means is that they might kill you, but not a hair of your head will perish apart from his will. 
He holds you safe. He holds you secure. And that even though you die, He will not allow you to be taken out of the Father's hand. I will save you even if they kill you, He says. Even if the waters look stormy and deadly. Where else will you go? Who, Who is your king? Who are you following? Maybe you're here today and you say, no, I don't follow anybody. I'm my own king. I make my own rules. Well, like Saul, maybe you scratch and you're clawing to protect your own kingdom. Eventually it's going to come crashing down like Saul's. But like Abiathar, what can we do? We can flee to the king. And he takes all who are discontent and distress and in debt. And he says, I will keep you safe. In me there is safe keeping. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would find refuge in you, God. I pray that all of us who are in distress, all of us who are in debt, all of us who are discontented, bitter in our souls, God, I pray that we would flee to you, Jesus, the true king who will not disappoint, who's overcome the true king who has died for us to forgive us of all of our sins, to rescue us from the wrath of God, to deliver us into eternal life, to to give us all of your inheritance safe in you. God, I pray we would flee to you and we would look up to you and that we we would be assured that in you there is safekeeping. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.